Two weeks ago, we began learning from the letter sent to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, which were read once again this morning. And we're going to spend a few more weeks within these verses. And here's why. Um, Because I think these verses help us address a huge need and desire of our community to be unified, to unify people who are usually separated or divided. So we tend to preach through books of the Bible here at the church, and so within this letter, within this book of the Bible, we kind of have like a little mini-series of sermons, and it's entitled, We Are One in Jesus Christ. It's a three-part, maybe four, just hold your seats, a three-slash-four-part message about the sin that separates and the Savior who unifies. As you read through these verses, you may not be able to help but think um, about the disunity you see or may experience within your own lives today. So if you'll be patient with me, what I'd like to do is, first and foremost, explain what Paul has said to the letter he sent to Ephesus, which is the most important thing. I I need to be very careful to not misrepresent the intention of this letter being sent to the church in Ephesus. That's very important. But if you will be gracious and nice and not be mean to me, what I'd like to do second is attempt to explain a bit of what our culture or society or the times are dealing with in terms of separation or hate or division. And so if you were not here two weeks ago, which is the first message we did in these little series of messages, you can catch it on the CityGate Church Teaching Audio Podcast. Um, And you can just start downloading those and listening to those when you have free time. But the reason I I wanted to spend some time in these 11 verses is because I want us to be aware that there is sin, it is real, and it absolutely divides us and separates us from one another. But I also want to remind people and encourage us that there is a Savior who unifies. He unifies us to himself and then us to one another. And so let's call this part two. Okay, this is part two, and uh, we'll give it another title. It's called God's New Race. God's New Race. Let me provide a bit of a recap. The verses, these verses written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, think modern day Turkey, emphasize the unity this church was supposed to experience in Jesus Christ. Paul started by reminding the Gentile people, those who are not Jewish, of their history. Verse 12 that Sarah read to us said, remember, he's talking to these Gentile believers, remember that you were at, the time, at a time separated from Christ, that's Jesus, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were not part of the the nation of Israel. And therefore, you were strangers to all the promises God had given to the world through his people. And therefore, you had no hope and you were without God. That was the reality of a Gentile, of a non-Jewish person. Now, in the context of this part of the letter, we're introduced to an existing barrier between the Jew and the Gentile. That's how Paul starts the second chapter. There is a barrier between these two people groups. The more you read the Bible, the more you will understand and learn about this Jew and Gentile problem. The Jews believed that Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. It was not lawful for a Jew to assist a Gentile woman during childbearing because that assistance would just bring another heathen into the world. Likewise, the Gentiles held their hatred of the Jew. According to the Jews, the Gentiles were dogs. According to the Gentiles, the Jews were the enemies of the entire human race. But there's another layer to the hatred that they experienced. And we cannot fully understand the Jew and Gentile divide unless we understand who the Jews were. Those whom God had called and chose to reveal his character and ultimately to reveal the savior of the world were called the Jews. Long story short, God spoke to a man named Abraham a long, long time ago, and he told him that he would be the father of a great nation and that when he is a father of a great nation, all the peoples, all the families of the earth would be blessed because of his great nation. Fast forward in time, and eventually we see the formation of the 12 tribes of Israel. The nation starts to to form itself, and within this nation, God gives them his laws. He gives them his moral law, his ceremonial law, and his civil laws. So God chooses a people. He says, you're going to bless the entire world, and here's how you are to live. In every aspect, in every way, here's exactly who you are to be. The nation of Israel is chosen by God so that they would know who he is, and they are chosen by God so the glory of God would be displayed through them to everybody around them. Now, this is a little back in week one still, but they failed. 
the nation of Israel failed at this. We see the evidence of this failure all throughout the New Testament, specifically in a story about a man named Jonah. Jonah was a Jew who God said, go to those Gentile people way over there and tell them about the news of my love and my salvation. Long story short, Jonah says, I'm not going. He runs the other way. Fast forward four chapters into the book. And at the end, God finally gets him there. He preaches salvation through God. Hundreds of thousands of Gentiles become believers in God. They start worshiping him. And as a result, Jonah's angry. He says, God, just kill me now. Kill me because I knew when I would go here and I'd tell people how amazing you were, you would save them. Friends, that's the definition of hatred when your enemy comes to faith in God. There was a huge divide between these two people. Fast forward a little bit more time in the storyline of the Bible and Jesus is born. Jesus is crucified. He's raised from the dead. And after that happens, he sends out disciples. He sends out Christians to spread the very same news that God told Jonah to go and spread. New churches are being planted. New communities of faith are being established. The truth about God is taking root in these Gentile communities. Those who were once far off are now hearing the good news of Jesus. But the issues of unity within the church began to surface between the Jew and the Gentile. The Jew and the Gentile are both coming to faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but there's still some confusion about how they're to interact with one another, how they're to be unified together. And so the question is, to you and to me, what do you do when you have people groups who live differently, speak differently, eat differently, dress differently, who are now side by side in a church worshiping God together? How would you, if you had the authority, if you were king or queen for the day, how would you help these two people groups move from disunity to unity? What would be your system? What would you teach them? What would you encourage them to do? What would be your message to the Gentiles? What would you say to the Jew? Now, as I often do on Sunday mornings, I ask you a question, but I don't need your answer, okay? So I'm glad that you thought through that, but we already have an answer. That's why we read the Bible. So I know I posed the question, but that's to help you understand maybe what you would do and probably how much different that is than what God is going to do. God's plan is to unify people to himself first and then to one another, ushering in a kingdom of peace, creating a new race of people. That's the big idea today. If you walk out of here, God's plan is to, is to make one new race. This will challenge us quite a bit today. So we're going to start in verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, so you, weren't far, you, you were once far away. You were away from God. You didn't know who God was. You were a Gentile. You were a pagan. You worshiped statues. You had all these weird religious practices. But now, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ Jesus. Paul says, you were once far away from God, but now you're near. You are with him. You are very close to him because of what Jesus has done, because of the sacrifice on the cross. Those who were once far off, living far from God, living enslaved to their sin, living without the knowledge of his laws, living with no evidence of God's character in their community, have been brought near. Meaning they've been brought near to God. They are part of his family. They are his sons. They are his daughters. They are welcomed into his family. They are citizens of his kingdom. Those who were once far off are now united with Christ. Now, if you look at those words, in Christ or in him, in that verse, Paul uses those variations of those words 10 times in the first chapter and a half leading up to chapter 2. This is the 11th time he says, in him or in Christ. And that is significant because there is a truth about salvation that should stir something within us. And it is this. We were all, all, I know some of you, you're amazing, but you were once all far away from God. But now we are in Christ. We are one with him. We have been blessed in every way. Jesus has been blessed. We have been seated with him in the heavenly places. He is our king. We are his people. He is our friend. He is our savior. He secures us. He loves us. We have been brought near. We are in him. Friends, all of your worth today, is, if you're a Christian, is because you are in Christ. That's where your worth is found. At one time, we were all slaves to our sin. We all did what we desired. We all wanted to do what we wanted to do, and we didn't want anybody to tell us otherwise. But now, we are in Christ. 
you know, we're, we're in Christ. You know, just as Jesus knows God the Father, we know God the Father. We have knowledge of him, which two weeks ago we talked about probably the biggest blessing of your Christian faith is that it's this simple. You know who God is. It's powerful. He is righteous before God. We are righteous before God. We are in Christ. He was raised from death by God. We will be raised from death by God. We are one with Jesus Christ. This union or unity we have And the unity the Jew and the Gentile experienced is because us and they are brought near to God by the blood, by the sacrifice on the cross of Jesus. And this nearness, friends, it's not geographic, it's not ceremonial, and it's not external. It is spiritual. We have been given a new spirit. We are united by the spirit of God. So if that's good, that that actually is good news to us, and we're excited about that, and we sing about that, and we pray about that, and we learn about that, then where does disunity come from? Where does division come from? It's it's actually quite a simple answer. The cause of hatred, disunity, bitterness, fighting, war, etc., and every other kind of division is sinful. And it exists because your heart and mind is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. The division within the Ephesian church was because people were in that church. The division we will experience or have experienced since launching this church exists because we are here and we are sinful. We're not as amazing as we think we are. I mean, on our best day, we're like 32%. We're not that great. Christ is great. We're not that great. So if God is making for himself one new race, calling people to himself by the cross of Jesus Christ, but we're still here and we're sinful, what is the answer moving forward? There's an answer to move from being, uh, the answer is to move from being in sin to being in Christ. Jesus is the son of God who lives in perfect unity with God the Father and God the Spirit. There is no deceit or hatred between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. The triunity of God. Our God is three in one. There is no deceit, no hatred, or nothing between them. Therefore, perfect relationship with our triune God results in perfect, um, perfect holiness, results in perfect harmony. That's why we want to find our worth. That's why we want to be found in Christ, is because within God, there is no division, there is no sin, there is no hatred. We are heirs to that promise. That's why we must always find ourselves in Christ. And the only solution for the Ephesian church and us is to have our sin removed and a new spirit put within us. Our sin removed. We should be constantly battling our sin, our selfishness, our pride. And we should be following Christ. The only hope for unity is through the same spirit, and that is the spirit of the triune God. Some of us really need to hear this because our default sin, the things that we're prone to, the things that we do first is bitterness, anger, hatred towards others. Many of us have a default sin of anger first. When life comes and smacks you around, you get angry. If somebody doesn't do things the way you want them to do, you get angry. If things don't go your way, you get angry. There's none of that to be found in Christ. That is our battle. We're still in the flesh. We are not yet with God, so we will battle this sin every single day. But I would encourage you that there is freedom from anger and bitterness when you leave your sin at the cross of Jesus Christ because that's where it was paid for. To have faith and trust that the Son of God died so that you could be forgiven. That's where sin lost its power over you. See, if you're in Christ, you have all the righteousness he has, and you're living by the Spirit, which he is living by, you actually have freedom to turn from anger to not anger. You have the the freedom to repent, which means turn around, walk the other way. It doesn't mean I will hate my sin, but then drag it along when it's convenient, and I'll pull it out and smack someone with it. That's not the Christian walk. The Christian walk is, I won't act like that all the time, but I need a little bit of it just in case. Because I'm going to see that person on Monday. Every Monday at 8.30, I see that person. And that's who I use my sin against. And they deserve it. That's not the Christian walk. The only hope for unity within our church and unity within our world is for Christians to 
walk away from their sin and follow the Savior. Live in newness of life. The sin of man, my sin and your sin, always moves towards disunity to separate us from people. The Spirit of God always moves towards unity. Verse 14, Paul says, this is why, for he himself, that's Jesus, is our peace. Jesus is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might make within himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. Now, Paul is talking about the hostility between the Jew and the Gentile. They hated one another. We've already established that. And Paul says the hostility between those two people groups could only be solved by Jesus himself. Paul says, who is peace? Who has ushered in a kingdom of peace? Who brought peace in the midst of hostility? And he did this by breaking down the dividing wall. The dividing wall is a reference to the Jewish temple. There was a picture of Jewish temple. Uh, if you don't know what it looks like, make one up. Okay, so there's like this Jewish temple and uh, there was a wall erected in the temple that would separate Jews and Gentiles. In fact, some temples had a sign that read this. No Gentile may enter the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. See, God had originally separated the Jew and the Gentile. That is true. He did separate them. He did call the people and say, these people are like no other people. But he did this for a purpose, and that purpose was to save all people. It was to save both groups of people not just for saving Jewish people. He placed the court of the Gentiles in the temple where Jews worshiped for the purpose of winning Gentiles to himself. He didn't want a wall there. He desired for Jews to reveal the worship of God to the Gentile so some would come near to him. It was an opportunity for them to show the world who God was. But Israel failed. We've talked about this before. They failed to witness to the Jews. The Gentiles failed to recognize God as creator. They were both equally wrong. God aimed at unifying people, but their sin drove them further and further apart because they looked different and ate different and smelled different and wore different clothes and spoke different. So many differences, they, they, they put their pride in all those differences and it drove them apart. But here's the deal. Here's what we must remember. I need to remember this. God's plans are never ruined by my sin. The plan that God has for this world is never ruined by your sin. God's plan to work all things good for those who love him is not messed up because we mess up. Because Jesus did die on that cross. Jesus' blood is sufficient to pay our debt we owe to God. And it's because of the death of the Son of God, we can now live in peace with God. And we can now live in peace with one another. Our sin will never mess up the plans of God because evil men killed Jesus. And then he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There is no other way to live at peace with God and at peace with one another apart from this cross. And Paul says, because of the cross, that dividing wall has been taken down. That wall that you erected, the spiritual wall in your heart and in your mind, the physical wall in the temple is done with. I have demolished that wall. I am unifying my people. And then we move on to another layer because Paul says we have been made into a new person. And here's what I think. Well, here's what I've spent much of my time the last weeks thinking about how to say this. And some of you will still think I say it wrong. And that's cool. I could use some help. This word new is very significant in these verses. Paul said making himself a new person. And that word used there does not reference to something completed or recently built. It's not referring to a new car coming off the factory floor, being one of many cars just like it. It's just not another Gentile. It's just not another Jew. The new refers to a difference in kind and quality, a completely new model of person. One new man, one new mankind, one new man coddle, <laughs> one new mankind of, one new model of mankind. <laughs> This new 
refers to a difference in kind and quality. Completely new model. A new model unlike anything that has existed before. So the new person in Christ Jesus, here, listen. The new person, you, anybody here today, and them in Ephesus, the new person in Jesus Christ is not a Jew or a Gentile who happens to be Christian. Here's where the rub comes and we get upset. He's no longer a Jew or a Gentile, but only a Christian. That will challenge the way we divide ourselves today, will it not? Let me be very clear, as I think Paul is very clear. Christianity is not black or white or any shade of melanin in between. It's not yellow or brown. It's not red or blue. The Christian is a new race of people who God is building for himself. And the Christian comes from every corner of the globe. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. God has made good on his promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12. Through Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. God is saving a holy people unto himself. So that's the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 12. God says, I'm going to enter into humanity. Abraham, I need you to have a huge family. And through your family, I'm going to bless all the people. Go to the end of your Bible and we see the result. We see what happens when the Spirit of God moves. Revelation 7. A great multitude, that means a lot. That no one can number, that means a lot. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues. And they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, who is Jesus, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And what were they crying with a loud voice? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He said he was going to do it, and he did it. He unified people from all corners of the globe to himself. God created us uniquely. This is true. You look the way you look because God wanted you to do it. So go on with your bad self, okay? God wanted you like that. That's not what I'm saying. God has given us some more melanin and some of us less melanin. I understand that. However, here's the issue. The way we look on the outside is not as as important than who is living on the inside. The uniqueness of your eye color or your hair color or your skin is worth nothing if your body is not the temple of the one true and living God. For what good is the uniqueness of our ethnicity if we're not standing with the great multitude in Revelation 7 from all other tribes, tongues, and nations worshiping King Jesus? Let us remember this. Your ethnicity, meaning your color of your skin, the language you speak, the culture you come from, is not superior to your justification, meaning your salvation, when it comes to unity in the church. That means we don't unify around the way we look or the way we speak or the way we act. That we unify around whose we are. We belong to Jesus Christ. Here, it's the same thing with different language, a little bit more language. The church is unified according to the spirit who lives within us. Not the color of our skin, the language of our tongue, not the foods we eat, the clothes we wear, the level of education, or your economic status. And we could go on and on and on and on with that. That is, not who the, that is not what the church unifies around. The church is unified according to the Spirit of God who has taken up residence in our life. This is Galatians 3, Sarah read. For in Christ Jesus, this is Paul again writing to another church. He uses the same phrase, in Christ Jesus. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ, having put on Christ... There is neither, what does he say? Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male. There is no female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. If you're in Christ, you're part of the promise in Genesis 12. And there is no distinction of status or anything in the church. All of us who were once far off have been brought near to God. We have been made into a new race, a holy and righteous people unto God. No longer, this means, no longer are we enslaved to our selfish desires, but we aim to serve one another. No longer do we bear the rotten fruit of the world, but we produce the righteous fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is great news, and this is exciting, because the Bible reveals that the world is attempting to accomplish on their own, God can actually do through his Spirit. 
So this is good news, but there's also a problem. Because this letter isn't sent to Ephesus unless it needed to be sent to Ephesus. Thank you. The Ephesian church claimed to worship one God. The Ephesian church claimed to be one with Jesus. They knew what Jesus has said about being one in his spirit and being in unity. Yet at the same time, they were not living in unity with one another. They knew what the Bible had said, what God had said. They knew what the sacrifice of Jesus Christ meant. Yet they still looked at each other based on their culture, their language, their skin color. They were not unified in the spirit. This is God's plan to unite people to himself. This is where unity is found. So now this is where you get to be gracious and patient with me. Because I do think this helps us understand how we, the church, are to go into the world to help people be unified. We're just exposed to God's written word. I mean, we believe everything in the Bible is true. It is from God. It is perfect without error. It was written by Paul's spirit-inspired pen. And so now we have a decent understanding why there is no room for division or disunity within the church. We know this. No matter how dark the past or no matter how grievous your sin, the power over it, the power it has over you has been broken, and we are one with God. We are his new creation. He is making us into a new race. But there is a problem. Here's the main problem we have now is that many Christians who do, not, do simply just don't believe this. It's not that they don't know it. I don't think they actually believe it, and that is sinful, which is why we at the church have been deceived in pursuing unity in all the wrong ways. Sort of a thesis statement would be, the church has adapted to the world's attempt to unify people. And we're just overlaying Jesus on top of it. Because all of us have watched as our nation, here it comes again, nation has increasingly turned on one another. All of us are aware how hypersensitive people are in relation to racism or oppression or human rights. And I would dare say, we all desire to make things right as much as possible. I know a lot of amazing people, and they don't want the world to be the way it is. Amen? We get that. There's a very few people in this world going, I, I love all the hatred and the disunity. Those people are mean. Okay, look, we desire to make things right. Like, I mean, that's an understatement, you know? I really gave it to them there, didn't I? They're mean. This is why I write every word down, people. I don't, I don't really think people are out there. Maybe let's just talk about us. I don't think there's many people here who are going, I love it. I don't know what you're talking about. What's the problem? I know I'm not alone when I say Christians desire to enter into this suffering of people and love them and support them. That is what we are to be about. But I've also gotten the sense that we're not preaching the right message when we enter into that oppression or that suffering. To be blunt, we have abandoned the language of Scripture and have adopted the language of the world. For example, let's say today we see a tragedy, right? Because we're aware of one every 24 seconds. You guys are all, you got notifications on your phone. You see it, right? Every time something wicked happens, we see it. So when we see a tragedy, and that tragedy involves an image bearer of God, a person, right? A human with dignity and value. You know that's interesting? We don't give people dignity. We affirm it, right? They already have it. Don't tell people you're giving them dignity. It's already there. Just affirm it. When we see a tragedy, and that tragedy involves a person, this is how we go about filtering what we're supposed to do next. If justice is to be done and people are to be served, if we're to right the wrongs of that tragedy, we must first figure out the ethnicity. Were they white or were they black or any mix of those in between? We want to know their sexual identity. We want to know whether or not a person is a citizen. We desire to know their religious practices. We want to understand if they are employed or not employed. And if they are employed, do they have a high position where they're kind of in power or affluent or not? We want to know if they're wealthy or if they're poor. We also want to know if they have a disability, maybe if they're young or if they're old. We want to know if they voted for President Trump or if they didn't vote for President Trump. We want to know if they'd like Hillary to be president or not Hillary to be president. We want to know if they're a group of people who have been systemically wronged in the past, or is this a new group of people who now the world is starting to oppress? 
That's how we've been trained to go about thinking of tragedy when it involves an image bearer of God. Instead of simply stepping into the tragedy with the goal of loving, serving, and sacrificing for those in need, we're asked to put each tragic situation through these filters. Because the world says, this is the way justice is to be served. See, the world says we should be about social justice. You've heard that term. I'm quite confident you probably have. Which means to reverse the reality that you, we have today. We want to reverse the reality of the distribution of wealth, opportunities, and privileges. That's what we want. Because if we do that, then those who are oppressed will live free, and everybody will be amazing. And once you get involved in social justice, you need to get involved in activism, right? The policy of action and using vigorous campaigning to bring about political or social change, that will help. And as we're busy going about the justicing and the activating, we must be aware of the intersectionality that exists which is the theory of sort of interlocking oppression. So if you're part of more oppressed groups than not, you're more oppressed than everybody else. Those who fall under multiple forms of minority, social oppression, class, race, sexual orientation, age, religion, creed, disability, gender, gender identity, all of those things. Once we figure that out, remember to be politically correct when you speak about things. And while you are being politically correct, please help everyone understand the new term which identifies the oppressor, the cruel, and the hateful regime of white privilege, which is a societal privilege that benefits people from a society identified as white in some countries beyond what's commonly expressed by non-white people under the same society. And I know me speaking about this doesn't hold a lot of weight with many people because I'm white. And as we're doing that, make sure you virtue signal. Be the first one to post to share your thoughts of how evil that action was so everybody knows you're not like that. Make sure we do that. Virtue signaling, the action or practice of publicly expressing opinions or sentiments intended to demonstrate one good, one's good character or moral correctness. And all of this can be done so we can tear down the patriarchy, a system or society of government which evil men hold the power and women are excluded. And as we're going about these things, filtering every tragedy through social justice, for anyone who is not with us, for anyone who does not agree with us, let's engage in public or online shaming. Let's expose them for the evil devils they really are. Friends, this is called the new morality. This is what people are doing every single day. A tragedy pops up, and instead of fearing sorrowful that the world is sinful and we can't wait to see Jesus where every tear will be wiped from every eye and cancer will be erased and there will be no more hatred in God's kingdom and we will all live in peace forever, glorifying him with clean clothes and palm branches, we'd put every tragedy in this filter, and this is how we attempt to solve it. This is what we're expected to do. So I've labeled it the, 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 the new morality. This is how you're supposed to act. This is how you're supposed to be. This is what the world says we all need to subscribe to if we are to be unified in our world today. Well, we, we almost have to admit then that the moral compass of the world is completely broke. It's smashed all to pieces. The world has no moral compass, and here's why. Here's an example. In 1815, black people were not people. In 1945, Jewish people we're not people. In 2019, babies are not people. Getting any kind of moral direction from our lost and wayward generation is like getting your sushi from a truck stop on 94. It's disgusting. And I'm not willing to take that risk. I've always wanted to say this and I can't wait till I got older. These are strange times we live in. You know, your parents would always say that. <laughs> I'm old enough now. These are strange times we live in. And the language, listen, and the language and the ideas we are using in our attempt to unify people, here's what they do. They undermine gospel power, and it makes the cross of Christ irrelevant in all these situations. Makes it irrelevant. All of these ideas come from a poisoned well. Because none of these ideas provide a new heart for people. None of these ideas align with Jesus' teaching about his kingdom that he brought to earth. 
These terms and ideas do not do the opposite of what Jesus himself came to do. These ideas will undermine gospel power, and it'll make the cross of Christ irrelevant. And here's why. Let's say we go about our days involving ourselves in social justice because we want to right the wrong. I agree. We all start with the right motive. That's a good thing. So first, we understand how everyone is oppressed in their own specific way. And once we have discussed those groups using the correct language, we all, while we're also involved in activism to make aware of this oppression, and if at the same time we're tearing down the structures that have been built up to oppress people, let's make sure we shame everyone, expose of who they are, that will fix it. Friends, what do we get at the end of all of that? We get nothing. We get nothing. Let me ask it this way. If we lead with the world's strategy to unify people, which in all honesty leads from bitterness and anger, and if we accomplish what we believe to be social justice, what do we get? We get nothing. In the same way, when you're really angry at that person you came to church with today, I know some of y'all, when you're really angry with them, and you're so flat out angry, you don't know what to do. And then all of a sudden, they just totally throw you off, and they walk up to you, and they go, hey, I'm really sorry about what I did. You want to know how I know the world's strategies won't work? Because even in that moment, we don't care that they said sorry, do we? Thanks for saying sorry. I hate you still. Why? Because bitterness and anger result in more bitterness and anger. Even when somebody comes up to us and apologizes and says, how can I make it right? Our first attempt is to say, oh, my word, here's how. And now we're reconciled and we have a relationship again. No, some of us actually hold it against that person for days, weeks, years. We cannot lead with bitterness and anger. And my point is the world is telling us to unify with leading with bitterness and anger. All these ideas lead us down the path for more condemnation for those people who are living in sin. A deeper hatred for the oppressor. More shame towards those who do not agree with us. The ideology of Justice will never lead us, social justice will never lead us down the path of forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation. It doesn't exist in that structure. This is the new morality, but it's actually not the great unifier. It is the great divider. Here's something to remember. Nowhere in the strategy that I just outlined, imperfectly, I would admit, Nowhere in the strategy for current day social justice do we get a whiff of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God. Because here's what he said. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed means happy. Happy are those who are meek. Happy are those who thirst for righteousness. Happy are the merciful. Happy are the peacemakers. Happy are the persecuted. He said if you're angry, you're guilty of murder. He said if you lust If you look at someone like you ain't supposed to be looking at them, you're guilty of adultery. If you get smacked, you know what Jesus said? Turn the other cheek. If you're sued, give them all you got. Love your enemies. Here's one. Pray for those who desire to kill you. Friends, the church looks at their enemy and doesn't wish good riddance upon them. They lay down their lives before them so they would know who Christ is. That's the Christian life. This is what Jesus requires of his people. And let me give you a little bit of warning, because this is important. My job is to challenge you and love you and encourage you all at the same time. It's like a wave of emotions. I get it. If the words of Jesus do not cause you to jump for joy and bring you back to the center, then I am afraid you believe in a Jesus whom you have never truly met. May we never be a church who introduces people to Jesus whom they will never really meet. Shame on us. Because if the plan of God is to reconcile people to him through the cross and then to one another by the spirit of God in his church, there's no room for anger or bitterness or hatred towards those who oppress anybody. If we preach Christ and him crucified, and if we preach this crucifixion as sufficient to forgive the sins of everyone, even the worst of sinner in which I am the worst, can you make that a point this week? When you say, hey, come and meet a man who changed my life. He saved sinners in which I am the worst. Make yourself the worst because Paul did it. We should go about our time investing. We should not go about our time investing in political activism. 
which honestly only leads to the election of another corrupt man or woman who is a false savior for anybody worshiping at the ballot. Why should we be consumed with public shame? Why should we just virtue signal and say, I hate those people over there. I can't believe they're doing what they're doing. That's just the fruit of forgetfulness because you've been saved by grace. You didn't earn it. Help me understand why we are encouraged to elevate ourselves over others, hoping the world around us notices that we're not like those people because I have a black friend. See how that works? I have a gay friend. I have a white friend. No, I don't, I don't hate legal immigrants. I know someone who's not here illegally. That doesn't do us any good. We will do all we can so we distance ourselves from those evil people over there. And it's not unifying. It's dividing. What happened to preaching Christ and him crucified? Why is this no longer enough? Listen, biblical justice as laid out in the Bible does not need an adjective to describe it as social. Justice doesn't need to be described. It does not need to be described as social. Biblical justice comes from God and is revealed through the word of God and the church must understand it and be about it. I'm not saying sit on your hands and do nothing. I'm saying doing what God has called us to do. Here's what God has said. This is just like six or seven. It, justice is all through the Bible. Here's six or seven things God has said. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God. That's for you. Isaiah 1, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove all the evil from your deeds from before your eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Amen. Isaiah 106, blessed are those who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Amen. Psalm 29, a righteous man slash woman, will involve you sisters, a righteous man knows the rights of the poor, a wicked man does not understand such knowledge. The Bible goes on for days about the character of God as revealed through his people. Amen. Goes on for days about who we are to be as a people. Some of you are like, well, that's the Old Testament. Okay, hold on. I got some New Testament. Romans 12. This is a tough one. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. Believe it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Paul says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. I love this part. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. James 1.27, religion that is pure, Christianity, your walk with Christ that is pure and undefiled before God. God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. The church does not get involved in social justice because we do not attack or malign those who are oppressed or those who are our enemies. In fact, what we would do is lay down our lives for them so that they would hear the gospel. This is God's word. And the word of God is not compatible with the way the world wants to unite people. The current trend of the world's attempt to unite people is not compatible with the word of God or the Christian faith because it thrives on pride, which results in division. It thrives on pride, and that can only result in division. Because we're already encouraged to divide based on skin color and sexual identity and gender and political party and immigration status and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do you see the irony? Divide first into your groups, then go be unified. It's madness. The world is attempting to unify people by first dividing us up in as many people groups as possible. What does Paul say addressing the Jew and Gentile divide? Because remember, I said, I'm going to tell you what Ephesians 2 says, because that's my job. I have to go to bed at night knowing that I didn't lie about what God said. I might not wake up. I'm just joking. That's a joke. <laughs> Honey, that's a joke. <laughs> okay. 
But there's an enormous weight about what, telling people what the Bible says. I'm not twisting this into some social justice talk. But my point is, what was Paul's answer to these people who absolutely hated one another? Because I honestly think we're pretty arrogant to feel like nobody else has ever gone through the division we experience today. Everybody has gone through it. Every age and every culture. And the Jew and Gentile lived it. The same thing we're living. They lived it. What was Paul's message? That he, Jesus, might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. Paul said, no, 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 no. Remember, you're not a Jew anymore or a Gentile. Forget all that. You're Christian. You have a new spirit. Friends, we need to fill our mind with the word of God. Because if we do not, we will be deceived into living like the world wants us to live. In all honesty, any idea put forth as a fix or a solution to the age-long problem of hatred and racism and division, let me just throw this in there. It's all a power grab. All the current ideologies are there so people can gain power. With power comes money. With money comes status, all of which are just the modern-day idols of our world. Do you see the irony? It's not good. It's modern-day idol worship. I don't worship the gods of this world. I don't want you to worship the gods of this world. I want us to worship the one true living God who has overcome the world. Amen? Now, there are some objections floating in your brain. I know that. And I need to answer them. But I can't. Ba-boom. So you have to wait till next week. And here are some of the objections. So the church does what? Nothing? We just observe and relax? No, not at all. The church is called to justice. I read five or six verses. I could go on for days about what God has called his people to do, but we must go about it the way the word of God tells us to go about it. That will be next week. What is the church's role with suffering and racism and oppression and hatred and division? Who are the people of God to be in those moments? That's next week. So I'll close with a few things. Let's just remember a few things. Number one, our sinfulness is real. Your sin and my sin is absolutely real and it is devastating. It's deep and it is dangerous. The world is one big kingdom where the devil and his legions reign, where sinful men and women govern with the aim at obtaining power and status. Totally different than the kingdom of God, right? Totally different. Jesus said the son of man came to serve, not to be served. Remember this when the culture tells the church how to pursue unity. The church, has, oh, the church has nothing to learn from our culture. You can say that to yourself 10 times a day. The church has nothing to learn from outside of its walls or outside of its Bible. The culture has everything to learn from the church. We're not perfect, but the culture has everything to learn for what the word of God says. Number two, unity begins at the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ isn't Jesus' last name, all right? Let's say you're here and you're like, I don't really get this. This is a weird Sunday to come on. Listen, Jesus Christ means Jesus the Savior, Jesus the Messiah, the one who was said is going to come through the family of Abraham. God was going to send his son so that his son could pay our debt that we owe because we're wretched, sinful people. So think of the word Christ. You could also think of Jesus, the king who has saved us. Call him that for a few weeks. Jesus is the king who has saved us, who has established a new kingdom of peace on this earth and who has saved us into that. Jesus is the king who will save us, who will reassert, reassert God's peace-bringing reign through his death on the cross and his victorious resurrection from the grave. So here is my plea to you. Turn to him and give him your trust and give him your allegiance. Walk away from the kingdom of this world and walk into the kingdom of God by trusting him and giving him your allegiance. Number three, everything we think, say, or do as a Christian must be filtered through the word of God. Everything. All things? Like everything. Like what about everything? We say, think, or do must be filtered through what the word of God has already said. We believe this Bible is breathed out by God. 
And it is profitable for teaching, for correction, and for training for every person. Last one. When we read the end of the story of the Bible, when you go to the very end, the final revelation given to a guy named John, he writes it down and he says, here's how these end times are going to shape out. Everybody's wondering what happens at death. Everybody's wondering what's going to happen at the end of the world. We make movies about it every year. Everybody's wondering. The Bible has revealed that Christ has already won the victory. Amen? Because he defeated death. He was risen from the grave. Therefore, our biggest fear can't hold him down. Your biggest fear is no longer your biggest fear if you're in Christ because you will be raised from the grave and be seated with him. He has reconciled people from all nations to himself because of his reign, because of his kingdom. And he did it, and this happened. Revelation 7, that we just read about all tribes, tongues, and nations, let me challenge you here. It happened because the church took the message and proclaimed it in the world. It happened because you opened your mouth and told people about the God who has saved you. That's how it happened. You don't get to Revelation 7 unless the people of God are proclaiming the good news of God. Let's look at Revelation 7 one more time, and then Adam will come up and lead us in communion. Revelation 7, 9 through 12. This is the end of the game right here. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, and all peoples, and all languages. Before I continue, hey, who gets us there quicker, the world or God? God. Who gets all tribes, tongues, and nations to stand next to each other in unity, not hating each other, not dividing over one another, not fighting any longer. Who gets us there? The world's ideas or God? God does. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe and every nation and all peoples and languages. And what were we doing? We were standing before the throne of the Lamb. That's Jesus. We were clothed in white robes. Some of y'all got an upgrade. And we had palm branches in our hands. And we were crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We'll do that forever. And all the angels were standing around the throne and all their elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God. What'd they say? They said, amen. Amen. Let it be. It is done. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to who? Our God forever and ever. You want a picture of unity in your heart to look forward to? That's what you look forward to. The world doesn't get us there. The Spirit of God gets us there. Amen.